and welcome to The Bunker Start Your Week, your need to know on news and politics. I'm Roz Taylor and joining me on this Blue Monday is Alex Andreu. Hello, Alex. Hello, Roz. It's 101 days since the Hamas attack that set off the war in Gaza. Britain is not at war, but we have joined the US in bombing targets in the Middle East, and a decision like that was always going to cause controversy at home. The Foreign Secretary, Lord Cameron, said yesterday that the strikes were needed because the Houthis had been bombing shipping in the Red Sea. It isn't really clear yet how much the Houthis' capacity to attack ships has been damaged, although they did fire a missile on Sunday. Rishi Sunak is addressing the Commons about it today. But Alex, there was no parliamentary debate before we joined the bombing. Keir Starmer says he was okay with that, but not everyone shares that view, do they? Yes, so so Downing Street briefed Keir Starmer and the Commons Speaker, Lindsay Hoyle, shortly before the airstrikes on Thursday evening, at which point Parliament had already risen for the weekend. The Liberal Democrat leader and the SNP and Plaid Cymru did ask for Parliament to be recalled on the Friday to hold a vote on the military action, but Downing Street basically said there are no plans for such a vote. Because under our constitutional system at the moment, as it is, no parliamentary approval is required for military action, although that has been the practice since Syria. The majority of military involvement since then, they have had at the very least a debate in parliament I mean, constitutionally, like I said, the Prime Minister is the only person that can authorise any kind of strikes. There's also a little bit of ructions on the left of the Labour Party. John MacDonald warned that any action risks setting the region alight, I think was his quote. And Jeremy Corbyn, who's of course no, no longer part of the Labour Party, but is a former Labour leader, described the attacks as a reckless act of escalation. So there is a big sort of conflict that will unravel today as Sunak makes a statement in the Commons this afternoon. Yes, Starmer made a distinction when he was talking yesterday between boots on the ground military action and bombing, although that does seem quite a high bar for parliamentary involvement. And during his leadership campaign, he took a different view, didn't he? I mean, he says he didn't. He says that he always, what he was talking about is a codifying of the guidance as it is at the moment. You know, people looking at the pledges he made at the time cannot find any such mention, although he has mentioned it before now. Uh, So there's been a couple of interviews in which he he has clarified this is the position. So this is not something he's making up to do with this specific conflict, if that makes sense. He had already sort of finessed his position last year on a couple of occasions. I mean, the bottom line is this, okay? There will always be a gap between the secrecy required before military action and democratic accountability. There will always be a gap in there. Because a government preparing to do a surprise strike with the United States cannot recall the commons and go and debate it, because that rather gives the game away. And so 
I mean, the question is, what do you do with that? Do you have a process of ratifying it afterwards? Do you have a process where you say some defensive action or some, if the surprise element is essential, then you don't need a vote. But if it's not, you do need a vote. Do you do it by length of engagement? These are difficult questions. The United States has effectively sought to solve this issue with the War Powers Act in 1973, which tries to strike that kind of balance. So it requires the president to notify Congress within 48 hours of committing armed forces to any military action and forbids armed forces from remaining for more than 60 days without congressional authorization or a declaration of war. But, you know, there hasn't been a declaration of war in its legal sense by the US or, or the UK since 1942. They're, they're essentially a defunct legal function. So, so we don't need to talk about that. So that's what the War Powers Act tries to do. And I suspect whatever position we land to in this country, if this area is reformed, will be something like that. Because you cannot remove from the executive the power to take sudden or secret or surprise or defensive action in those situations. All you can do is force a system on them that makes them sort of justify it after the event and seeks parliamentary approval for longer engagements or boots on the ground or bombing. I mean, it, it will always be an arbitrary line that separates those two things because there is that very obvious logical lacuna in there. You cannot notify your enemies that you're about to take military action. That, that's not something that can happen in a conflict situation. No, but there are probably two things that MPs will want to debate today in Parliament. Mm. One is whether the UK had to get involved. We played quite mm. a minor mm. role in the bombing, but we were the only other country apart from the US that did. And also, when does this end? The conflict in the Middle East is spreading. What are the limits on our involvement? Yes, I think that's true. We didn't have to get involved. But I think it's also true that, that not getting involved would come with a price. You know, if the, if the US is left feeling isolated by its closest ally, this has a knock-on effect, an impact on our relationship. And generally speaking, British prime ministers tend to go all in with the US on those things. And I think the US acting completely on its own versus the US acting with the UK are two significantly different propositions in diplomatic terms. So, no, the UK didn't have to get involved. And I think there is a larger conversation to be had there as to whether we follow the US as a matter of course into all these things. I think that's a conversation worth having. But at the moment, that is the position. I also suspect that part of the decision to become involved will have been driven a little bit by politics. You know, Sunak looks strong and prime ministerial, while Labour will become mired in internal arguments. You know, maybe that wasn't the determinative factor, but it can't have been an insignificant bonus, let's just say that. Grant Shapps is announcing today that 20,000 British troops will be sent to Europe as part of a big NATO deployment. Mm. And over the weekend, a defence analyst from Oslo posted on X 
that we are massively underestimating the threat from Russia and Putin may well attack Europe in the next few years. Are we, do you think? I, I had a look at that thread. It's it's really interesting. I think that the answer rests on who we are. So when you say, are we underestimating the threat from Russia? You know, if you're talking about me and you, then definitely having read that thread, we are vastly underestimating the threat from Russia. But I suspect that somewhere in our intelligence services and the Department of Defense, there are people who do analyze the scenarios and do think quite deeply, precisely about this sort of thing. So I can't think that, you know, a blue tick on Twitter just had this incredible thought that no other security forces around the world have thought before. I'm sure it's one of the scenarios that they're working on. But it is quite a sobering threat, you know, in that it does look into detail at how a conflict would unfold between Russia and NATO. And it isn't as you might expect. You know, it's not a sort of massive declaration of war where everyone piles in, but it's a sort of process of, you know, fraying around the edges and 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 sort of doing outrageous stuff and then pulling back from it, doing outrageous stuff and then pulling back from it, to which the West does not tend to react swiftly and decisively enough. And that comes back to the conversation we were just having. You know, democratic nations on the whole are at a disadvantage when it comes to war. That's the bottom line. You know, if if you don't have one person autocratically making all the decisions with no accountability, with no need for approval, with no need for international coordination, you know, you would be much, much stronger in a in a war situation. And that's the situation with Russia. Putin just decides where he wants to strike and in what way and then does it. That doesn't mean that, you know, our slowness and, you know, vacillation when it comes to that kind of decision is not a feature of our democracy, which is worth preserving and protecting. Which takes us, of course, back to whether military action should be debated in Parliament quite neatly. (laughs) Yes. The Rwanda bill is back this week. It really is back. And we're waiting to see if Tories, either One Nation or the so-called Five Families, are going to be able to amend it. Rishi Sunak seems pretty confident of facing them down, Alex. We expected another big row about this, but is it going to happen? I think it will happen, um, but I think Sunak will win it, and I think he can be quite confident of winning it. And that's because, you know, there are amendments to toughen up the bill, as it were, to make it even more hostile, to make it even more outrageously in breach of international law. And some of those amendments have up to 60 Tory MPs behind them. And so if the opposition voted with those, the government would be defeated. But the opposition has no support for wanting to toughen up this law. They don't like the law at all. They would want it weakened, watered down. They would want to move in the opposite direction. So you then come to the sort of opposition amendments that most of the Tories that want the bill to be tougher will not vote for. So the bill stays unamended because it has no majority opposition for either being tougher or being weaker. And what happens then? 
will those rebels vote against the unamended bill? And the smart money is that only a very small number of Tory rebels will actually vote against the unamended bill. So we have this really weird phenomenon of a bill going through that the vast majority of MPs find insufficient or wrong or unsuitable in some way, and yet through it goes. Because effectively, the MPs who oppose the bill cannot agree on whether it should be tougher or weaker or, you know, in which direction it should go, which is weirdly reminiscent of all the sort of Brexit debates. Embarrassingly, the iPaper reports this morning that some asylum seekers from Rwanda have been granted asylum. What happens, <laughs> do we think, legally if these people have to be sent to Rwanda? Do we get to overrule our own decisions? I think looking for logic in our immigration policy is a fool's errand, to be honest. It, I mean, considering that at its core is the fact that we are a country that needs large amounts of immigration economically, but has a population simultaneously that resents it in large part. So until that honest conversation is had at the national level and, and, and resolved emotionally, I think, then policy will pull in two opposite directions, resulting in all kinds of ridiculousness. That's what's going on. You know, we are a country that needs immigration but doesn't want immigration. And so as a result, immigration policy is a mess. Five migrants drowned in the channel at the weekend. They hadn't left from Calais this time, but further along the coast. Mm. What's the situation with small boats? I mean, it's it's depressing that deaths in the channel right now appear completely unable to move the dial on this issue at all, one way or another. They get reported almost in passing. And I think this is because each side now has its own rhetoric on the issue, right? The right claim that this is why schemes like Rwanda are vital, because they will discourage crossings, making them actually humane. And those who would like us to be more generous to asylum seekers, of which I am one, will argue for safe and legal routes. So both sides have a position which makes internal logic, right? You know, as long as you don't have any facts impinging on it, <laughs> both positions make internal logic. What these latest deaths show, I think, very clearly, is that this issue cannot be resolved, resolved by policing the beaches from which these boats launch. That we can take from them completely solidly, because if you increase patrols on the beaches from which the boats launch, generally speaking, this is what happens. Boats launch from another beach, even further away. I mean, this one came from near Boulogne, which is a way away and under cover of darkness, which makes the journey even more dangerous, right? So this must mean, I think, that Labour's approach of international policing cooperation to stop the suppliers of the equipment, the traffickers at source to stop the dark money, that has to be the right one. Not wave machines, not planes to render, not nets, not, you know, not boys with razors on them. All of that stuff is gimmicks because effectively, once those people have paid that money and have reached the coast, the gangs will launch them from wherever they can. And the journey will just keep getting longer and longer and more and more perilous. So you have to stop that transaction at its start. 
And the way to stop that transaction at its start is safe and legal routes and tackling the trade. This is a trade. There is a market for it. You have to disrupt that market. And you don't disrupt that market by going you know, to the front of the shop and saying, you can't sell all this stuff because people will sell places on these boats from the back door of the shop. And it also suggests that you need the deterrence, what we think of as a deterrent now, is not really a deterrent. You know, being more like far more likely to drown because you're setting off further down the coast through yes. a longer stretch of water is not a deterrent. I mean, there was another boat also that we can that got into trouble. Two people fell overboard, they were rescued, and the rest of the people on the boat refused help from the French, you know, border patrol. They threatened to, to basically overturn the boat if they came near them because they wanted to continue their journey to the UK. So literally, death, the threat of death will not dissuade them. So I don't know how a, you know, a plane ride to Rwanda might. And the big story of last week was the sub-postmaster scandal, of course. What's the latest there? As predicted, it's moving to the wider scandal, right, that goes beyond the prosecutions and convictions to the thousands of people who repaid money they had not taken. And there are stories over the last few days that this has boosted post office coffers by up to a reported £250 million, for which the very executives who failed the victims collected large bonuses. So I think this story has a long way to run. The Daily Telegraph is quite shocked today by a YouGov poll that predicts the Tories will be wiped out at the general election. They won't actually be wiped out. They'd hold on to 169 seats. But it seems to have put the frighteners on David Frost, who says that Sunak is complacent. Is this just more code for cut taxes now, or do they have some other plan? Um, okay, so the, the, the poll reports that a result of the election would be 385 seats to Labour, 169 to the Tories, which means a 120-seat majority for Labour. And it also reports that Reform UK will make the vital difference in 96 seats, apparently, which would otherwise have gone to the Tories and mean a hung parliament rather than a Labour landslide. Now, Even without come, Nigel Farage. Yes, and they say that if Nigel Farage were, were to return, meaning a bounce of two to three points, then you're in proper wipeout territory. Okay, so some caveats. I read a quote. The poll was commissioned by a group of Conservative donors called the Conservative Britain Alliance and carried out by YouGov working with Lord Frost. It's a company, it splashes on the front of the Telegraph, accompanied by a big editorial, also by Frost, also on the front of the Telegraph, urging the Prime Minister to end focus on net zero and cut taxes. According to the poll, and again, I quote, which I have been involved in shaping and analysing, writes Lord Frost. I am in general quite cautious of, well, this evidence confirms everything I believed anyway. And this is a particularly egregious example, I think. There are, I mean, even 
on a light reading and without seeing the, the samples, the precise numbers and how they were weighted, I could see large holes in this thesis. One example is that if reform decide, for instance, not to stand, there are assumptions as to where those votes go that involve all of them going back to the Tories, which I don't think is true. I think some of them would go to other you know, right-wing parties. I think some of them, some of those people would stay at home. And I think some of them would vote tactically because their motivation is to punish the Tories. So look, it's a, it's a large sample and it's worth diving into the numbers and seeing what the questions actually posed were. But it seems to me that for it to be commissioned by a newspaper and a particular person within that organization that have a very clear agenda, and for them to come up with the answers that that agenda was plainly looking for is suspicious, and one must really read it with a truckload of salt. So you're saying that once again, the Tories are being tempted by a narrative that moving to the far right is going to help them. Yeah. Yeah. Turning to the US, um, the Republican caucuses in Iowa are today. To recap, these are the races for Republican would-be presidential candidates. There's been a lot of talk in recent weeks about the chances of Nikki Haley making a real challenge to Donald Trump. Is that going to happen in Iowa? No. I mean, I don't think there was ever a doubt that the Iowa caucuses would go for Trump big time. The question is by how much. Interestingly, Trump has really been poor at expectation management on this. He really has set sky-high expectations for his own performance in this first contest of the, the race, you know, for the Republican presidential nomination. So I think he was even talking about going over the 50% mark on his own. So I think anything below that, anything less than a crushing victory, might end up looking like momentum is beginning to sap away from him, which is quite interesting. You have Donald Trump imploring his supporters to brave temperatures because it's like minus 25 at the moment in Iowa and go out and vote for him, even telling them that he's worth dying for. I'm not making that up. Dying of hypothermia. Oh, yeah, yeah. He said, you can sit at home. If you're sick as a dog, you say, darling, I got to make it. Even if you vote and then pass away, it's worth it. You know, he's going to win this. But like I said, he could end up winning it, winning it by a lot and still seeming like he didn't quite do as well as he thought he would do. I mean, Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis are the two people still in the race. The, there was a, a final Des Moines Register NBC poll before Monday's caucuses, and it found that Trump had a big, big lead in the high 40s compared to 20% for Nikki Haley and 16% for Ron DeSantis. So the battle really is for second. That is the most interesting thing that will come out of this. And there are different theories as to who would make a more formidable opponent for Biden, because Ron DeSantis in some ways would be quite close to 
the Trump message into the Trump base, so he might cause more trouble that way. But Nikki Haley, on the other hand, has more broad appeal. And and I found one tidbit of that, you know, Des Moines Register poll, really fascinating. 43% of the people who back Nikki Haley in this contest, so almost half, say they'd vote for President Biden if she's not the Republican nominee. So that's quite a bit of food for thought for Republicans. I mean, my sense is that maybe not after the Iowa poll, but maybe after two or three more contests, if someone emerges as a clear second, then the other person will drop out. And then we will see the anti-Trump vote crystallize behind one, one person and have a better idea as to what percentage it is. And that will also be interesting for Joe Biden himself, of course, who is extremely unpopular. Uh, He congratulated William Lai on winning the Taiwan presidential election, and China did not like that. Beijing has called Lai a troublemaker. What are the challenges he's facing now? Again, an interesting result. We talked about it last week. So the Taiwanese voters have overwhelmingly chosen the pro-sovereignty candidate, William Lai, as their president. So they've given his party a third term. He's basically the person that charts the course that is most divergent from China. The other two were effectively a pro-Chinese person and a sort of more middle way, let's find a way to live together type deal. Um, So Beijing are really angry. I mean, it's, it's, I guess, a bit silly for them to be extra angry that Joe Biden congratulated him. I mean, you know, we know who the US supports in these kinds of contests, and we know that China doesn't like this particular candidate. So, you know, much of a muchness. It's also interesting that that China have pulled back a little bit from their rhetoric pre-election, which were insisting that Taiwan is part of China, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, And now they're emphasizing sort of peaceful reunification and ruling out the use of force. So maybe there was an element of them trying to influence the election by saying that if you elect this guy, then we might invade and are now pulling back a little bit from that. But, you know, we'll see in the next few weeks uh, how it goes. I mean, in many ways, like I said, because it's a third time term for his party, this is very much status quo. So they go back to being exactly in the uncomfortable, hostile relationship that they were for the last 10 years. And it's going to be very cold this week in Britain, especially if you're in the north or Scotland, but probably not as cold as it'll be in Davos, where the rich and powerful are having their annual get-together. Alex, it's Blue Monday officially, but you aren't blue. Why not? Well, because I, I, I always find it quite weird to think that this is, you know, the most depressing day of the year and all of that, because I find the days are getting notably longer by now. Like, you know, the shortest day was 22nd of December. And, you know, the day's already about 40 minutes longer now. If the sun is coming up as I speak to you right now, and it's looking really lovely outside, it's bright and um, and this kind of sharp cold actually is a lot less depressing than grayness and drizzle and rain. And so I just I just don't get that. I think 
to me, this time of year, you're on the final sort of stretch before spring. It's really six weeks to spring. So I think if you start to think of it like that, it's it's much better. I was also enormously cheered by an interview on the Today program this morning um, with a company called Deep Green, which is a company that uses heat from computing. So they basically invite companies to use their hub for running their calculation, you know, for keeping their servers, that kind of thing. And they use the heat generated by all that computing to heat buildings and, uh, you know, public swimming pools and, and things like that. So they put their hub literally underneath in the basement of buildings and use the heat generated by the computing to heat the building. And and apparently this technology is easily scalable, upscalable, and that uh, cheered me no end. I was also reading about a uh, sauna, a community sauna in Hackney, which is getting very popular. Apparently people are bonding in the sauna, which sounds very un-British. It's very exciting. Yes, that, yes. I mean, yes. It depends on the sauna, I'd say. Um, I've, I've seen some bonding. I've seen some bonding in saunas before in this country. Indeed. Thanks so much, Alex. <laughs> My pleasure. And you can support us to keep making bunkers for just £3 a month. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast. I'm Ros Taylor, and thanks for listening. Start Your Week from the Bunker was written and presented by Ros Taylor with Alex Andreu. The producer was Liam Tate, and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis, and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by Jim Parrott, Start Your Week from the Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>